Rosé, La360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Haley Knopf. Hi, Haley. Hey, Amber. We are down one Alex Lawson this week. We are. Our boy. He's gone. I mean, look, I like an all-ladies show. Hold it down a bit. You know, we'll, we'll see how, how we, uh, what we get up to. Will we talk all Bravo all the time? Hard to say. <laughs> The dream. Although we can't talk <laughs> about The Bachelor because that's Alex's wheelhouse. Yeah, that's right. We we do have to like keep some stuff for all three of us. Um, we do have a pretty packed and good show to get to. Uh, a little later, we bring on Jimmy Hoover, who is the co-host of our sister show, The Term. Jimmy's going to talk about a legal test that's being weighed right now at the Supreme Court about the separation of church and state. And it's a pretty nuanced but very interesting talk. It is. It's fascinating. Everyone should make sure to stick around for that. But first, I want to kick things off with a pretty major update in the New York Attorney General's investigation into the Trump Organization's finances. I'm sure you got a push notification or five about this development this week. But Donald Trump was held in contempt for refusing to comply with a subpoena in the Attorney General's case. Um, This is a subpoena that the New York State Court had said he absolutely has to comply with. And what this means is he now has to pay $10,000 a day until he hands over those requested records. And I do, I I just want to say up front, I know we all have a bit of fatigue when it comes to Trump headlines. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of lawsuits (laughs) around Trump, so there was definitely a bit of an overload. But this one is really shaking out to be quite the legal saga, so... I, I hope you're not too turned off from this. It's it's worth it. No, I like uh, I, I'm glad we're going to break this down for a couple reasons. I mean, you see some pretty splashy headlines out there about him being held in contempt. And that is really unusual for a former president to be uh, to have that happen. And you see the number of the 10,000 a day and that kind of gets some eyeballs on the news. But I wanted us to get into like the nuance of it. I mean, we're the wonky legal news podcast. So I just want to kind of break down the real facts here. Let's take a step back and refresh me on how we got here, because as we've sort of pointed out, Trump's had a lot of legal troubles. It's hard to keep track of what's what. It really is. So this is the case where in January, New York Attorney General Letitia James said that she had uncovered evidence that the Trump Organization fraudulently submitted false valuations of assets. And um, those were submitted to the government and financial institutions allegedly to get loans and tax benefits. So specifically, she's saying that she believes the organization overstated the values of conservation easements at several Trump properties. Those include the Trump National Golf Club out here in Los Angeles and his Seven Springs estate in New York. So in connection with that, James's office has issued a number of subpoenas to Trump, his children, a real estate firm, a, a whole bunch of entities But, you know, Trump is uh, not having it. Yeah. What exactly is she trying to get after with those subpoenas? I mean, is there specific details that she thinks she can unearth that way? Yep. Yep. So she wants statements and communications on the organization's financial condition and related assets and documents related to the financing of the Trump International Hotel and Tower, conservation easements, potential development or alteration of Seven Springs insurance coverage, and communications with Forbes magazine. That's a lot of details. So I'm not... It ent- is. I'm not entirely surprised that Trump is like, um, I would like to not give you that. Right. Yeah. But so his refusal to do so is how this 
wound up in New York County Supreme Court. James asked the court to force him to comply. The court issued an order doing just that in February. He still hasn't. So here we are. So what did Trump say in court um, about why he is not complying with the subpoenas? I mean, I have a I have an inkling about the kind of stuff he would say, but what has he actually said to the court? He has a whole bunch of arguments for for why this subpoena is not worthy of his time, shouldn't be upheld by the court or excuse me, shouldn't be enforced by the court. So he says the documents that James is after are actually held by the Trump organization, not him personally. He also has attacked the investigation overall. He's calling it a contrived publicity stunt. He also identified a number of issues with uh, the specifics of the request. He says the AG is demanding information that's protected by attorney-client privilege, executive privilege. Of course, he loves to use that one. Um, He says the request is outside the statute of limitations. It's vague. It's overly broad. It's unduly burdensome. And also, according to Trump, it's irrelevant, which is an interesting... um, you know, an interesting approach, but you got to throw it all yeah. on the wall, see what sticks. It It is a bit of a kitchen sink there, the list you just um, laid out. I mean, in fairness to Trump and the Trump organization, I think many people who try to avoid a subpoena do say some of those things that like, oh, it's, you know, vague or too broad or whatever. Um, but how did the court react to his arguments? The court very resoundingly sided with um, the attorney general on this. So New York Supreme Court Justice Arthur F. Ingron very much disagrees with all these takes or all these arguments. In February, and that's when he ordered Trump to comply with the subpoenas, he said the court had reviewed thousands of documents that were handed over in response to earlier subpoenas, and they all show that James has a pretty good basis for continuing its investigation and asking for this stuff from Trump. And on Monday, the court held a hearing on Trump's failure to comply with the order. The judge said that Trump's arguments uh, came after the deadline to comply, and they were woefully inadequate. It was a pretty heated hearing, uh, according to our own Frank Runyon, who was covering it. In particular, the judge seemed really annoyed with how Trump, quote, has not refuted with admissible evidence OAG's detailed assertions that he failed to search numerous filing cabinets in various locations. Okay, I think that's such a funny detail in an otherwise serious story that it's right. not, oh, he failed to find something on a server somewhere. It was literally like, no, there's filing cabinets you didn't look at. Yeah, like physical, take us back to you our You just roots. don't hear that a lot in 2022. You don't, you don't. And um, the the judge had a, a nice little quote here in his ruling from the bench. He said, Mr. Trump, I know you take your business seriously and I take mine seriously. I hereby hold you in civil contempt. And uh, on top of this, uh, Frank reported that the judge actually banged his gavel before adjourning the, the meeting. And he later said that was the first time he's ever used a gavel in court. So that's something. Yeah, pretty contentious, it sounds like. You know, I would imagine those sort of bad or angry feelings are on all sides, particularly from the Trump camp. Have they responded to what the judge said? They have, and Trump has already appealed it. Trump's attorney told reporters that the decision, quote, did not even come close to meeting the standard on a motion for contempt. 
So now the matter is in the hands of the first judicial department. And so uh, it's worth noting that the appeal alone does not stop those fines from accruing. Trump would really have to convince the appellate court to step in and pause them during the appeal. So in the meantime, they're still racking up and the attorney general could seek a judgment to collect. Depending on what the appellate court says, this could be a really costly ordeal for Trump. So we'll have to stay tuned. Well, let's pivot from one potentially costly legal drama to another one that has definitely got some big figures in it. I wanted to ask you as we started this about your feelings on typos. Haley, I mean, we're writers. How do you feel about typos? (sighs) They really grate on me. I've got to say. Okay, then you could perhaps work at a major law firm because there's two firms that at this very moment really, really hate typos. It's Cleary (laughs) and Oric. Here's why they hate them so much. Late last week, a New York state judge rejected a bid by the firms to escape a $310 million malpractice lawsuit over an alleged typo in a big deal that was valued at $2.4 billion and it was related to wind and solar energy facilities. That is incredibly stressful. I have to say, although, of course, they do grade on me as a writer, I also have my own typos from time to time. And I would hate for them to come with a $310 million <laughs> yeah, price tag. Consequences here at Law360, are they still exist, but much lower. Yeah. I'd rather fill out a correction form any day. <laughs> sure. Um, let me break down kind of what went wrong here. So the story, as I said, is about a deal between energy companies. There's one called Terraform. It's a renewable energy company. Its parent company is Sun Edison. Terraform and Sun Edison jointly signed a contract to buy $2.4 billion in energy assets from another renewable energy company. The deal was pretty complicated. It included um, what's known as a deferred payment obligation, and that was to be paid in the event Sun Edison went bankrupt. The provision said that buyers would be liable to the sellers for payment. It turns out Sun Edison did go bankrupt and the sellers demanded that Terraform make the payment. Mm. Terraform didn't want to pay up for that. They said the word, the use of the word buyer in the contract was an error, that it was a typo. And what the parties really meant was for only Sun Edison to be accountable for that payment. This dispute actually went to court. It ultimately got a judgment that said Terraform did have to pay and to a pretty penny there. It was to the tune of about $327 million that was appealed and it was ultimately settled for a slightly smaller amount, but still over the $300 million mark. Once again, this is all very stressful sounding. Um. <laughs> it is. It's uh, pretty crummy for Terraform. That yeah. brings us sort of up to date with the background and now we can kind of dig into the malpractice suit. Terraform sued the lawyers on the deal for malpractice alleging they failed to warn the company of what they termed was a doomsday scenario (laughs) that, in fact, ultimately has played out. I'm sure it does feel like doomsday for them. (laughs) Yeah, it's a big figure. So the firms say the malpractice suit is just Terraform trying to saddle them with the cost of buyer's remorse, essentially. The firms pointed out that Terraform is itself a multi-billion dollar company that has a full in-house legal team. So basically, Uh, they should have checked the contract before they signed it. Oric actually had this to say, quote, a legal malpractice claim cannot be premised on a sophisticated party's failure to read or comprehend unambiguous contractual terms that it signed. Ooh, yeah. So here's my favorite part of the story, though. There's more. I mean, it's not just like, oh, look at this typo they're all fighting about. The part that really gets me is this. 
The energy company and the firms all agree that a Cleary attorney actually corrected the typo in question that led to this $300 million error. What? That attorney, you're right. It's crazy, right? So that attorney in a markup of the contract had written in by hand a note to change the word buyers to hold co-buyers. And that would have resolved this problem. But the edit never made it into the final signed agreement. No. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's like a nightmare. Um, So Cleary says that the markup shows it did alert Terraform to the error. They sent around that draft to Oric. They also sent it to some of the in-house lawyers at Terraform. But Terraform comes back with an argument that, you know, I can sort of see both sides of this. Terraform says, hey, um, it's on both law firms to make sure an edit that's that important actually makes it into the final contract. So, um, yeah, you know, some I mean, real battles. Wow. This is I'm on the edge of my seat. Truly. What did the judge have to say about this? I think everyone's kind of on the edge of their seat with this story because the judge basically said the show must go on. Um, <laughs> the judge won't dismiss this case. That was the big event this past okay. week. Um, the judge said more facts are needed to basically decide who's at fault for this mess up. And the judge said discovery could actually shed some light on everything, get some more details here. As the case moves forward, Cleary will move into discovery phase, but Oric has an arbitration agreement with the company, so that's where they could end up. Okay. It's a little bit early to say what our big takeaways are from this malpractice suit because we're just in the beginning of it. But overall, my personal take on this situation is that I'm just so grateful and glad that we have an entire team of copy editors here at Law360. Yes. Shout out to the copy desk. Thank you for saving us from... $300 million mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, copy editors. I think the whole world could use more of you. The Supreme Court is once again wrestling with the separation of church and state as it hears a case of a high school football coach who was disciplined for praying at the 50-yard line after games. During the argument, the conservative wing of the court aired frustrations with the long shadow of a 1971 ruling that was intended to clarify such disputes, but it's only caused confusion and uncertainty. Here to talk about the court's difficulties in settling church and state battles is Law 360's Supreme Court reporter and also co-host of our sister show, The Term, Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy. Hey, Amber. How's it going? It is always so nice to talk to you. And this case in particular is pretty fascinating. I want to get into what exactly the court has to decide here. You wrote about something that's called the lemon test. Can you tell us a bit about what that is? Yeah, the lemon test. It, it As you say, it comes from this 1971 Supreme Court case, Lemon versus Kurtzman. And in that case, the court, it struck down a Pennsylvania law that provided you know, public funds for private religious schools in, in some contexts. And basically why it's important is, as you say, the court in that case, it kind of had its sights pretty high. You know, there was a lot of confusion in the doctrine of how to decide cases under the Establishment Clause, whether something violates the Establishment Clause, which separates church and state. And in that case, the court kind of proposes this three-pronged test to look at, you know, the purpose of government conduct, um, you know, its effect, and whether it gets the government too entangled in religion. Now, the problem quickly becomes apparent as to like how to apply these very subjective tests 
And so a few years later, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, she proposes kind of a more clarified version of it that became known as the endorsement test. And it basically asks whether a reasonable observer looking at the government's conduct in a case could say whether you know they're endorsing religion or not. So the lemon test and the endorsement test, they kind of are used interchangeably sometimes. And they were the governing uh, doctrine. It was the governing doctrine for establishment clause cases for many years. So, what's the status of the, those tests as doctrine now? I mean, are they still considered how these things are decided? I mean, the minute you said three prong test, I went to the <laughs> immediate thought of like, those are always messy. What's going on here? Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. It is messy. And basically what happened was what what tends to happen on the Supreme Court, which is that the membership of the court itself changes. And so the court becomes more conservative, um, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, with the addition of new members to the court. And this lemon test kind of starts to fall out of favor a little bit because it's 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 very rigid, according to uh, conservative justices who opposed it. And you know, it, it basically provides an ad, uh, an avenue, a mechanism for anyone who doesn't like any kind of religious element to anything happening in the public sphere, whether that's like a non-denominational prayer before like a legislative council meeting or, you know, some re- like historical religious insignia on government buildings, things of that nature. Under the Lemon Test, they're kind of presumptively unconstitutional. And so they they see it as very rigid, very inflexible. And so they start kind of shying away from the lemon test over the course of you know several decades to the point where in in a 2005 case involving uh, you know an image of the 10 commandments in a Texas government building the court basically says that you know it's time to kind of pivot away from it but importantly here the court doesn't actually go take that further step of actually overturning it so they've introduced all these other comparable tests to use whether they're talking about does the government's conduct you know coerce anyone into into religion or or things of that nature but they don't actually repeal it and say this is bad law and you have to suspect that that's because all these cases that were decided under the lemon test would suddenly be unsettled and you have to go back to the drawing board and it would cause all sorts of more confusion so it's really (laughs) it's really kind of a mess here Amber. there's no way out of this mess jimmy because either they say the lemon test is bad law and then they have the problem you just described or they leave it on the books, which is what they've done, but kind of ignore it. And that creates another downstream mess of like, what is the law in this area? Right. So that does sound like just such a, a tangled web of, of confusion. It's, it's still on the books, but mostly ignored as precedent. Why is it still causing such a headache? And how did we get to, to this, this coach praying case? I suppose it has to do with the fact that, you know, most your average American isn't maybe necessarily up to speed on the on the latest doctrinal changes in establishment clause law. And you don't kind of what, say. <laughs> I can't believe it. That's kind of what happened in this case, where you know, Coach Joe Kennedy, he's the he's the coach of a of a high school football team, a public high school football team in Washington, uh, the Bremerton Knights, for for around eight years. And you know, he has this tradition. He prays at the fifty yard line, um, uh, and before the school district became aware of it, you know, he was leading the students in prayer and mixing motivational themes with, with, with religious ones. School district finds out about it. They say, you know, this is not good. You have to stop doing this. You have to stop praying with your students. And so, uh, you know, Coach Kennedy, he, he at first complies, but after he hires, you know, uh, lawyers from a kind of a religious liberty group, he basically 
starts to he kind of throws down the the gauntlet a little bit and he goes back to the 50 yard line after games and he he's kneeling by himself and he's praying and you know sometimes students join him and and other times they don't he's praying silently by himself but basically the school district says you know we try to accommodate you here we we told you that you can of course engage in religious exercise but you can't do these public demonstrations and there's a lot there's a lengthy back and forth here in the record and in this case is one that's kind of like factually complicated because there's so many facts on each side but in any event they the school district decides to take the step of putting him on administrative leave because he will not you know stop his practice of praying at the 50 yard line and in its decision to suspend him it basically says that you know, and I'm quoting here, it says, under federal court precedent, a court would almost certainly find your conduct on October 16th, this is back in 2015, in the course of your district employment to constitute district endorsement of religion in violation of the United States Constitution. That kind of sounds an awful lot like the endorsement test under the Lemon decision that we now know a lot of the justices on the Supreme Court think is basically bunk, right? And so that kind of complicates things when the case comes up for oral argument on Monday when you have a number of conservative justices, primarily Justice Gorsuch, kind of hammering away at counsel for both sides here, the school district and the coach. What do we do when you have a school district that's relying on a f- establishment clause law that's basically been held to be not applicable in these cases? So I can see why Gorsuch, why that would really stick in his craw and he would hate that. What kind of stuff was he asking and saying during oral arguments? And I I imagine he wasn't the only one. Kavanaugh, I think, was pretty outspoken on this, too. What did you hear from them when you listened to those arcs? Right. Well, Gorsuch is asking, you know, when you have so many of these school districts around the country relying on Lemon, despite the fact that the Supreme Court has made pretty clear over many years that, you know, this isn't necessarily a test that keeps being used. He says, like, what do we do about that? And you almost kind of hear where he's going with it, which is the idea that, like, this may be, this case in particular presents kind of like a golden opportunity for the Supreme Court to declare once and for all that this is bad law, that this is a formally and officially overturned. The school district pushes back and says, you know, if you think that we basically read the Supreme Court's case law wrong and we used the wrong test, you should remand this back to the Ninth Circuit over whether the school district um, satisfied basically another doctrine that has kind of evolved over the past several years. And I don't want to make things too complicated, but the school district says that Coach Kennedy's conduct was coercive. And the Supreme Court in several cases has said that that coercion is actually a more appropriate test in determining whether the government's conduct is a violation of the Establishment Clause. Yeah, so okay. so it sounds like the school district basically said, like, so tell me what test you'd like us to use, and a lower court can go ahead and do that. Right, and they also say that there's evidence in the record in this particular case that Coach Kennedy's conduct was coercive. They have, right. uh, they have testimony from a school district official who says he was approached by the parent of an atheist student who the parent uh, said that his son felt like he was being compelled to participate in these after-game prayers out of a fear of being deprived playing time. And the school district also points to an amicus brief filed by uh, psychologists who say, you know, these are very, this is a very impressionable age. You're talking about like 15, 16, 17-year-olds 
who look up to a coach who's in a position of, you know, not only authority, but someone they kind of look to as a role model. And if he is, you know, has a big huddle of students praying with him at the end of games, they're obviously going to feel some subconscious or even conscious pressure to join in that. And so that's obviously going to be the fallback argument of the school district if this case continues in litigation. I suspect that the court's probably going to figure out a way to take care of it one way or the other. Well, you've actually directly pivoted me into what I wanted to do um, here, which is make you get out your crystal ball. What do you see as potential outcomes here? I mean, we've got the normal, like, they could overturn it. That seems sort of likely to me. But what did you hear? Do you think they'll do that? Or will they just keep ignoring the lemon test, but leave it on the books? They are very good at ignoring the lemon test. A lot of practice. Yeah, they they could just say that it's not totally not applicable in this case, and they can come up with another rationale wow. for why the uh, school district violated Coach Kennedy's First Amendment rights. That's exactly what they did in 2019 in a case involving uh, a cross-shaped memorial that was basically maintained by the Maryland government to honor the World War One dead. That you know that was a case that also presented an opportunity for the justice to get rid of Lemon. They didn't in that case. I mean, it, it seems like this is just one that keeps coming back. And as you can see from the from the school district's letter in this case, it's it's kind of causing problems because it's not very clear. I mean, basically, when you have these uh, public school officials across the country, they they should probably have some clear messages from the United States Supreme Court as to what they can do that's you know, constitutional and what's not. So, Jimmy, my final thought for you is, you know, you're a fellow podcaster here at Law360. Save me from myself. I really want to call this episode, Is the Lemon Test a Lemon? Ooh. Oh, uh, Amber. Uh, I like no, it. I like no. it. Stop <laughs> yeah. me. I know. I know. Alex, Alex is not here for this episode, so he can't intervene, and he definitely would. So you got to cut me off here, guys. <laughs> Paul Clement, the attorney for Coach Kennedy, called it a stubborn fruit, which I think is, oh, is, is nice. definitely a fair. Yeah, a fair there you go. Okay. Much classier, much classier. Uh, well, thanks for explaining this one, Jimmy. It has so many nuances. I'm going to be really interested to hear how the court untangles it, or if they do just sort of turn their eye away from the lemon test yet again. Thanks for having me on. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and I can't believe I'm doing this, but I want to talk about golf. Hmm. I'm okay. It's a surprise coming from this me. This is a surprise. So I know we both live in urban settings. I mean, I'm outside of the New York area, and you're in LA, but a ton of people have been moving during the pandemic, and a lot of them are opting for places with sort of idyllic views, and sometimes that's on the edge of a golf course. Okay. Yeah. Actually, I any appeal so I, for you, Haley? Would you ever want to like look well, out at at uh you know the pretty groomed? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I think I would rather just like you know be in the countryside. But I'm very curious to see where you're taking this because my grade school was on a golf course. Oh, great! Then you will know exactly what I'm about to talk about. So I'm basically bringing a cautionary tale in case any of us get an itch to move to somewhere with a nice view, and many golf courses exist in the country. So. One family says they were terrorized by golf balls from a course <laughs> behind their house. And they actually ended up suing over it. And they got a really big verdict for this. Five million bucks from the country club that runs the course. 
I'm very surprised that they came away with anything in this because you would think when you buy a house on a golf course or a school, uh, in my uh, case, you just expect that uh, golf balls are going to wind up in your yard or children might throw dirt at you while you're (laughs) trying to golf. Sure, sure. Like you can see the golf course. There's inevitably going to be some golf balls. I hear what you're saying. But the thing it kind of reminded me of when I dug into this a little more was remember years ago, I think in the 90s, there was that big verdict for a woman who spilled McDonald's hot coffee on herself and everybody was like, how dare she get all that money? And then when you looked at the actual facts of the case, she was severely burned, had all these surgeries. The hot coffee was made hot because McDonald's wanted to sell more of it and it kind of tasted like crap if it was cold, like (laughs) stuff like that. So this isn't exactly the same, but it's got a little shade of that to me. So I kind of wanted to break down the circumstances a little. Okay. It's a family named the Tenzar family. They live in Massachusetts, and in 2017, they moved into a brand new house that they considered their dream home. It has views of the 15th fairway of a a neighboring country club. Not long after they moved in, the golf balls started flying onto their property. And according to the family, it was very, very bad. Here's some incidents that I'm just going to run down real fast. Flying balls shattered windows in their house repeatedly, sometimes with enough force that it sent glass spraying into adjacent rooms, including the playroom where their kids were. No. The siding on the house was peppered with dents that they compared to how a battleship looks after it's been in a war. Neighborhood kids wore bike helmets whenever they went out to play because they were scared of being hit in the head by golf balls. Golf balls took out an entire deck railing. And to give an overall picture of just how bad it got, The family picked up nearly 700 golf balls on their property over the course of four years. Wow. So that's a lot of golf balls. Yeah. Okay. Now it's making more sense. It is, right? Like when you break it down, you're like, man, that's a tremendous number. So was the the hole like in their yard? (laughs) Why (laughs) are people pretty close to it? So obviously the family, it's a parent and three kids ages like two to five little kids. They say the whole ordeal has been emotionally taxing and in addition to just all the damage and whatever, during golf season, they just can't relax or use their home properly because they can't really go in their backyard. They're scared of like windows breaking, all the stuff we just talked about. So it's pretty messed up. So what what was the, the legal situation here? At first, they actually tried to stay out of court according to some reporting on this case. They tried just talking to uh, the name of the country club's the Indian Pond Country Club, but they say they didn't get responses when they reached out. Then they tried calling the police, but the police basically said, like, there's really nothing we can do except notify the country club. So that's all the police could do. The family says that mm. at that point, they talked to some golf course experts and tried to get um, specialized netting, which I think a lot of places use that to relieve problems like this, where when the ball gets hit, it's caught by a net and it doesn't really block views because, again, it's a net. It's not like a wall or something. But they sure. actually found out in their particular case, the net couldn't be constructed high enough to be effective for their property. So that's a bummer. Oof. Yeah. So eventually they did come around to consulting a lawyer. And here's what they sued for. They sued for trespass and then had a bunch of claims related to the emotional distress they suffered. The trial was actually a couple months ago and they won a couple things. First, a permanent injunction against golf balls, which just saying that out loud makes me <laughs> kind of giggle. Like, yeah, golf balls enjoined from being here. They also, uh, the jury gave them a verdict that adds up to about $4.9 million. Since this all happened, the country club has reconfigured the tee box for the 15th hole. 
And the family says that has resolved a ton of this, that it's been months since they've seen a golf ball on their property. But the country club's not happy. I mean, they're appealing the verdict. They said that they did try to do things when this all started being a problem, Mm. that they consulted with the course's architect, and they took some other mitigation steps. So they are contesting this. Wow. This is fascinating. And you, I mean, like we talked about, this is a very common place where people want to live. Yeah, because, I mean, golf courses are pretty. People like them. They like being a part of a country club where they have access to a golf course. It's It can be appealing. And there's a lot of golf courses in America. So, yeah. you know, when I was thinking about this situation, it did not sound like a one-off to me. So I did a little internet digging and it took me almost no time to find an interesting New York Times article that was from back in 2007. And it was all about this very problem. Basically, the piece pointed out that part of the problem is that over the years, golf equipment has actually gotten way more sophisticated. So that increases the distance even just average casual golfers can achieve when they hit the ball. And it's led to a ton of problems like this because as the drivers get better, et cetera, it means that more balls are going further and maybe more errantly because it's not expert people wielding them anymore to get that distance. So that's the root of some of this. There was a guy quoted in that article who's the director of the Urban Land Institute, and he said this, Homes that have been on a golf course for decades without incident are suddenly in the path of guys whacking giant-headed drivers. The golf course designers are trying to adjust with wider fairway corridors, but because of liability issues, no one's willing to put on paper what the acceptable setbacks are. So that's interesting. I bet there's some like insurance implications for this too, right? As far yeah, as the that, policies. There seems to or- be a lot going on here. I mean, I do think it remains unusual for a family to get a big verdict like this um, out of nuisance claims that's really hard to prove in court. And we'll see if this one gets knocked down on the appeal um, as it continues to move through the court system. But I did just sort of want to say, you know, if any of us decide to move, buyers beware of houses near a golf course. (laughs) Yeah, I'm suddenly... uh grateful for my millennial status and the fact that I may or may not ever own property. (laughs) Let's stick in our condos and apartments. It seems so much simpler. It's working out for us. (laughs) Thanks for being with me today, Haley. It was a great show. Thank you, Amber. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Jimmy Hoover and our contributing reporters, Frank Runyon and Rachel Scharf. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left a written review to help other people find our show. And if you want to read more about any of the things we talked about today, go to our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.